Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Bedula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula and Hondo Gertz here, and we are so excited to have Stephanie Easter with us today. Stephanie was the first civilian director of Navy staff, was principal deputy acting assistant secretary of the Army for Acquisition, Logistics, and Technology, and spent many years in the Navy prior to that, including as the executive director of the F-35 program. Also is a brilliant engineer. And Stephanie, I was um, listening to your remarks from 2000. 17 at AUSA um, to prepare for this. And you told a funny story about the Army-Navy game and who to root for. And we were about a month in at the Army and folks were asking you to say, go Army. So I'm curious, who'd you root for last weekend? Oh, wow. Well, Lord, thank you so much for having me today. I will tell you, I had to root for Navy. Yeah. Um, I, I jokingly tell everybody, you know, that rivalry's been gone on for a very long time. And there was a streak when Navy won every year. And then I went to work for the Army and miraculously Army won. So I took full credit for that, saying that Army won because I was now part of the Army team. But unfortunately, that didn't play out when I left two years later because they still beat Navy. But That's awesome. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Stephanie, for joining us. Well, Steph, it's, uh, it's great to have you here. And um, you've got one of those remarkable careers where it seems like as soon as you... Uh, you made your mark, you made the change and went somewhere else and, uh, and really kept challenging yourself. Multiple services, um, you know, in industry now, in government. How did, uh, how did you get involved in national? How did you go from a chemical engineer to coming into national security? And then, you know, what's your story? How did you get here? Oh, wow. It, it is a very unusual story for sure. Um, as you mentioned, I graduated with a degree in chemical engineering from North Carolina State University, Go Wolfpack. Um, and when I graduated, my plan was to get a job in a research triangle area working for Dow Chemical or pharmaceutical company. But I had a friend who had graduated the December before I did, and she went to work for the Department of the Navy. And they had actually recruited at NC State, but I didn't visit their table because I thought you had to join the Navy to work for what I know now to be Navair. And so she said, you got to come here. It's the coolest place in the world. And so I came up to visit her. Um, I interviewed. It was a long story because I was first told they weren't hiring chemical engineers. And then I went down to OPM. And this was back early in the 80s when, you know, you had to do a SF-171. So I posted my application and things like that. But then I ended up you know, getting a job at Navair, and I fell in love with it. Um, engineering was where I started, mostly in aerospace and mechanical, even though I was a Kimmy. <laughs> but I realized right away that I really liked program management, so I transitioned to that. But that's how I ended up working for the Navy. My plan was to work for three years, get some experience, and move back to North Carolina. But 35, 36 years later, I was still there. <laughs> that's amazing. And, and what drew you to acquisition specifically? Oh, well, I knew that um, I didn't want to be what I call a hardcore engineer. And as I was coming up and being exposed to having the opportunity to connect 
you know, cost schedule and performance together with the outcome of providing capability to sailors and Marines, it was exciting. You know, it was like to be able to work on something. I'll never forget my first job was um, working avionics support equipment. And we were having this big debate about how big it needed to be. And I remember this officer in our office saying, you know, a half an inch makes a difference, Stephanie. And I'm thinking a half an inch can't be that big of a deal. And so he arranged a trip for us to go out on a carrier so that I could see firsthand the conditions that our sailors um, operate in. And it hit me very hard that a half an inch makes a big difference. And that was almost a life-changing event from a career perspective. And I realized right then and there that I wanted to make sure I had an opportunity to get capability in the hands of the warfighters and that they could use and that worked well in their environment. So That's fantastic. And so you spent several decades working on some of the nation's most important national security programs. And the focus of our show is on what we call the National Security Industrial Network. So creating this strong connectivity between the industrial base and the national security community. And and over the time while you were in these roles, there has been a, a lot of changes in the in industrial base. And a lot of manufacturing jobs, for example, have left the country. And there have been um, kind of a, a decreasing number of suppliers in the DOD and industrial network. Can, can you talk about that trend? And are you seeing it reversing at all? Um, I don't know that it's reversing. It's definitely evolving. Um, I thought back to, you know, you got your big five, you know, but when you think about what they're doing today versus what they were doing decades ago, they're serving more as integrators. So they're a lot more dependent on that second tier and third tier. And some of them are even operating in that environment. Like if you look at F-35, you got Lockheed Martin as a prime, but Northrop Grumman fills a big part of that. And you got the BAEs and everybody. So now with the focus on getting small business and mid-tier business into the government, I think that's giving the industrial base a different look, um, but it's pretty much the same. And I also believe that we can't forget about what I call the organic industrial base. Our services have capabilities that we often forget about when we're talking about industrial base. Like you look at Indian Head, you know, what they're doing. You look at some of the depots in naval aviation and their ability to produce product, you know, at lower scale, of course, than our prime industry partners, but, but definitely there. So my, my point is the industrial base is evolving and everybody has a role to play, I believe. So, Steph, when last time we were in the E-ring together, uh, I actually tried to recruit you to come come be the uh, head Navy civilian acquisition leader uh, based on all the great stuff we did and your ability to do push-ups on the E-ring when we needed to do push-ups. Uh, m- more for your, your, just your outstanding leadership skills and, and ability to bring people together. And you said something to me, uh, you know, hey, I'd love to come do that, but I want to go challenge myself in industry. I want to go see see what it's like there and see how I can perform there. What, what have you learned since you've gotten out? Uh, and, and what lessons do you, have you taken that you think other government leaders can, can learn from an experience like working in industry for a while? Wow, I, I've learned so much. I tell you, and you probably remember this. Um, we used to always be told, you know, why can't we be more like industry when we were in the government? So that created a visual in my head of what industry was. Agile, um, 
worked with speed, um, no bureaucracy. And I'm learning that that's not always true. Okay. Uh, so I coined this phrase that sometimes I believe industry takes on the character of its customers. So if you're a big industry and you're dealing with the Department of Defense, you have just as much bureaucracy as your customer does. So that was a big surprise for me, to be honest with you. Um, the other thing that really shocked me was when I saw what it was like on the other side to respond to an RFI or an RFP. I had no idea the amount of money, time, and effort it took to respond to an RFI or an RFP. I mean, it, it was really eye-opening, the amount of energy and effort that industry puts into that with the possibility of not even winning, right? And the plan and the investment that goes into that. And on a lighter note, just the timing, you know, I'm, in the government, we have this tendency to drop an RFP like now in December, you know, or in, in November, it's like, oh, responses are due beginning of January. But that impacts people, you know, being on the other side, it's like, wait a minute, I've got to pull a team. I've got to get this stuff going. Somebody's going to have to work over the holidays. So things like that have been very eye-opening. But like I said, the biggest one is that industry does a lot of things right, um, but it's not the answer to everything, I guess, which I think a lot of government um, professionals think it is. Um, the other thing I will say is that industry is full of a lot of patriots who support our country just as much as people who work as civil servants. Yeah, you can contribute lots of different ways. You don't have to be in uniform exactly, to contribute. Exactly, exactly. And industry is not the enemy. They are truly partners, and they desire to be more partners. So that was an eye-opener. Did, did I think a lot of government folks think they're communicating effectively with industry? And, and my guess is when you see it from the other side, maybe that communication isn't as robust or deep as the we maybe thought we were doing while we were in government? Uh, definitely. Uh, I, I can't even tell you how many times I said, oh my gosh, I had no idea. You know, because we have our talk in government, we have our speak and our language, and we use it and we assume that industry understands that. But that's been the other, I guess, surprise is that the inner workings of the government is not as well understood outside as it is inside. Language and everything matters. And we we being the government can be a lot more inclusive, I will say, and transparent. And we tend not to do that, especially in the acquisition space. I know when I was growing up, you know, it was kind of like, well, no, you can't tell industry certain things, you know, because that creates an unfair advantage. I think we have to get past that, like way past that and figure out how we can be transparent about budgets, about requirements, about things of that nature, because it helps industry respond better and more effectively. Yeah, I think sometimes we confuse exclusive. You don't want to give somebody exclusive information. That doesn't mean you don't want to give everybody useful information. Exactly. That's a perfect way to put it, right? Because we get caught up in that. It's like, well, and then we psych ourselves out because I'll confess, I, I dealt with this in a couple of jobs. It's like, well, if I share with one, I got to share with all. You know, and you kind of you can easily talk yourself out of it. But I think that's why forums like industry days and, you know, just having those engagements, even outside of an RFI or an RFP and getting industry involved in the requirements conversation can be very beneficial to DOD. Mm -hmm. Increased transparency and dialogue is something we're pushing quite a bit for a strengthened 
industrial network because um, we just see it goes both ways too. I think for industry to help inform requirements by showing and displaying the technologies that they're creating is very helpful. And to get that guidance from the U.S. government helps even product roadmaps and strengthens just the the technologies that the private sector is building to know kind of details of applicability and the like. And, and uh, Stephanie, something you talked about in your leadership roles was the importance of, and you hit on this a little bit earlier, bringing in disruptive technology players, startups, and, and the non-traditional commercial technology companies to support defense missions, especially as we've pivoted to focus on near-pair competition. And, and there's a new national defense strategy out which echoes that same message. Can you talk a little bit about your perspective on how we can better integrate startups into the national security ecosystem and perhaps steps that we can take on the policy side? Is it Congress? Is it DOD? Or is it the startups who can help here? Any thoughts on strengthening that? Wow, I've got lots of thoughts on that. <laughs> and it's all from different perspectives. Um, I'll start with the policy. A lot of times we blame policy for not doing things. I think we have a lot more, I think the government, I've got to stop saying we, <laughs> I think DOD has a lot more flexibility than they exercise. Okay, so I, I just want to make that point is you don't always need congressional or legislative change to do some of the things that we're talking about here. So when you talk about startups, I mean, there's the, you know, small mom pop, you know, can't even begin to work with DOD because they can't even get past the bureaucracy that we require that they require. Sorry, I apologize for that. <laughs> you're, um, you're still part of us. Okay. Stephanie. All right. Great. Thank you for allowing me to do that. Um, so I think one way to address that is teaming, okay, to have those mid-tier systems integrator companies, and we have plenty of them around that are very experienced with working with the government, kind of like a mentor-protege, but at a different level, you know, and team them up, help them get into the space because they have lots of disruptive and great technology, but a lot of times they just don't have the resources to get into the game. So I believe if you team them up in a mentor-protege, or I call it mentor-protege 1.0 or 2.0 that goes above and beyond, but actually usher them through the process. You know, if you're a system integrator um, and you have <clears throat> a small, you know, startup, you don't just make a relationship with them and share things. You walk them through the process. I think that will be beneficial. Um, that allows the small, um, the small business to leverage what the mid-sized or larger business has to offer without them having to fundamentally change who they are. <clears throat> because that's one of my biggest concerns when we start talking about leveraging this disruptive um, take capability in these smaller businesses, that they turn into the larger business and they lose the very thing that we are after. Okay, so to me, that's that delicate balance when we start creating this network. And I love the fact that you guys use the term network because it, it represents that each node is independent but connected. So they don't lose what they offer and what they bring to the table, but you leverage it to the best extent that you can. So I think there's opportunity there. I think we don't need a lot of policy change to start that. I think we just need the mindset and what I call, um, you know, just having a risk-averse, you know, mindset and just kind of go for it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks on our show agree with you and say it's not policy, it's more cultural barriers that hold us back here. Any thoughts on that? 
Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I can tell you from being a program manager myself at one point in my career, um, there's a lot of pressure um, to deliver cost schedule performance, right? And it tends to lead you to be risk averse, right? Because if it's contrary to popular belief that there's no accountability in DOD when a program doesn't deliver on time or on schedule, I, I don't buy it. There are consequences and you want to avoid those to this maximum extent possible. So whenever there's a risk, you know, if you take on risk from a technology perspective, you risk impacting costs and schedule. So it's just that mindset away from that risk averse mindset to say, hey, I'm going to take the risk to go faster. I mean, how do you, you know, this is SOCOM. I think that's what made SOCOM different than some of the other commands is you took risk and challenged assumptions. And that's the culture that we need. And I think the whole consequence conversation has to be um, had a little bit more robustly because there was a time not too long ago, you may remember, when the Hill wanted, I mean, give me names. I want names of the people whose programs did not deliver. When we come out like that, we're sending a message not to take risk. Okay, so we have to be very careful about that. We have to see risk as opportunity, and we have to be okay with failure. We just have to fail fast, which is something you used to always say, fail fast, just go out there, do it, do it fast. We can learn from it and move on. Another, I think, key element, I certainly learned at SOCOM, and, and I learned a lot from you when you were the director of the Navy staff, um, was the key of partnering. And, you know, uh, shockingly, you might not know that sometimes the Navy Secretariat and the Navy uh, operation, you know, the Navy CNO staff didn't always get along so well. And uh, and you made it a point, and, and, and I think I tried on my side as well, to bridge that gap. And how do we bring the strengths of both teams together to kind of break down some of the subcultural elements that also exist in organizations? What what made you comfortable with doing that? What how did, how did you, uh, where, did, where did you get that skill? I mean, you were the first civilian ever to, to be the director of the Navy staff, which was, uh, was a huge undertaking. But I think that bringing folks together to solve, because either side doesn't know the other actually has the authority to actually go do something different. Yeah. Oh, wow. That one, it started way before the DNS job. So I grew up in acquisition, as I was saying, Navier, uh, mostly in naval aviation, um, went on to become an executive PEO, deputy PEO, and things of that nature. But then I had the opportunity to go be the N1B, and it's military manpower personnel training education, completely out of my wheelhouse, had nothing to do with acquisition. I've never served in uniform, so it's not like I knew a lot about that. But that was my first true immersion into the operational side of the Navy. And what I learned, even in that role, even though I was in the acquisition role, is that there was a lack of understanding about what the other side did. Because I got to get involved in the, you know, from a different angle from the pbb and process. I mean, it's one thing to be a program manager and a PEO, giving your requirements and, and your budget information up. It's another thing to be on the other side as a resource sponsor, trying to balance the books, trying to determine what priorities are. I know when I was a P deputy PEO, it was like, just give me what I need. I know what I need. Just give me the money. When I saw it from the other perspective, I realized it's not that easy 
is not that simple. So that gap I saw was a lack of understanding and appreciation for what the other side did. So when I started, um, I'll say, just engaging with the operational side of the Navy, I realized that they knew what acquisition was, but it was those guys, right? And they really didn't have a clear understanding of what it took to run a program. So I took it upon myself. I was like, okay, I can educate here. You know, both sides are right. Both sides have value. It's not a you're right, you're wrong. It was what do we need to do to work better together? And I think you did a great job of that as well. You know, I mean, and I know when um, VCNO Moran was there, I mean, just the connection between the Secretariat and the, um, the CNO operational part of the Navy is critical. It is absolutely critical to the path forward. And it's not just in the Navy, it's across DOD. Because I saw the same thing in Army, right? As the acting acquisition executive for the Army, dealing with the chief of staff of the Army. Again, I tried to take on the role as educator. We did not agree on a lot of things, but my thing was, if you can understand why I'm taking my position, we're a lot better off than you just thinking I'm being obstinate about it. So Stephanie, since you left government, you've worked for two different private sector companies. Neither was part of the defense prime, the the big five at the top. Um, Something we talk about quite a bit uh, on our show is uh, just worries about the trends of consolidation um, with those large primes. You talked about teaming, which I completely agree, I think is an important strategy um, to help the primes take some smaller companies along, mentor them. I think that angle is, is a great way to talk about it. But what's your take on consolidation specifically? And is there anything we should be doing to enable an industrial base that's a bit more balanced and agile in nature? Yeah. Um, <laughs> consolidation to some extent is good, but we can't overdo it. I mean, if you look, I don't think we can ever go below the top five, right? It used to be a top 10 that, you know, so there's been a lot of consolidation leading up to this point. And it's, it's not bad. You've all seen in the news, you know, the added attention on acquisitions and, and mergers. And I, I think that's necessary. Um, and it goes back to the conversation we were having earlier as you get bought up into larger companies, you kind of lose, you have the potential to lose the very thing that made you beneficial in the first place. And that's why I think more consolidation of the industrial base is something we have to worry about. Um, the other thing is just competition. I mean, we, we live on competition. And I, to be very candid with you, I go back and forth on this every six months, so to speak. You know, competition is good. And it does help us, um, one, maintain an industrial base, and sometimes it helps the government get a better value. Um, But there's times when you don't need to do that. You can just go sole source. And knowing that balance, and knowing when to strike that balance, I think is just as important as just having the everything has to be competed mindset. Yeah, I think, uh, boy, we could do a whole show just on that. I mean, it's a that's that's one of those really interesting struggles you have as a so as a leader in acquisition is what's the right balance here. I think the other balance we're struggling with is how much R and D should we do versus actually going and buying stuff. And you know we've got the I think the largest R and D budget in the history of the DoD, probably overperforming on prototyping, but not really buying anything. Are you seeing the same thing kind of from industry side? And you know you can't really make up the business 
model if all you're doing is developing one-offs and not ever actually buying at scale. And, and unfortunately, the, the soldier or sailor or airman, if we're not buying things, doesn't actually improve their capability. Yeah, so an, another complex conversation that can be a whole day conversation. Um, but I, I look at that from two angles. One, there's the, the desire for the department to um, do its own RDT&E efforts. And I think IP drives a lot of that. Okay, this um, concept and desire to own the intellectual property because industry, you know, invests a lot of money, need to own it and things of that nature. But the government wants to own a lot. So striking that balance between owning and not owning, I think, drives a lot of that heavy investment in RDT&E. Um, again, I can see both sides of that coin, you know, I, from a national security perspective, I definitely see the need and the desire for the government to want to own, um, a lot of IP, but also when you look at where we are technology, technologically and how fast things are migrating and changing, we have to think about that. I mean, we're now at the point where we're in a lot of software driven systems, you know, so, I don't know. How, how do you balance that? I, I haven't cracked that code yet. If I had, I'd probably be doing something totally different right now. <laughs> so, Stephanie, I want to pivot to talk about your career, and particularly because you're known for breaking through barriers. We talked about how you were the first civilian director of the Navy staff. Can you talk about skills and approaches you've found to be most helpful when approaching these challenges? Well, first, I'll say have an open mind. Recognize what you know and what you don't know. And for me, that's being able to ask questions. I Anybody tell you, like, oh, man, you ask so many questions. And it's like I don't ask questions, you know, to challenge. I ask questions to better understand. And that's what I had to do in every new job I took. And the other thing is to understand where I was at any given time and to be able to surround myself with talent and the people who could fill those gaps, you know, and, and taking risk. I, I tell you, when I left Navy after over 20 plus years, I went to Army, you know, people like, are you crazy? You know, how could you do that? And I, I was very fortunate. My first Army XO, which is the equivalent of a Navy EA, um, had a Navy background. He had commanded Navy Test Palace School. So he could speak the language, but I, I relied on him heavily to, I call it translate, because even though I went into the job saying acquisition is acquisition, you know, so if I did it for Navy, I can do it in Army. I still had to learn the culture. I had to learn the way they did business. And so I had to ask a lot of questions and I had to rely on a lot of people. As an engineer, that was hard, okay, because throughout my career, um, I had been in what I'll call naturally progressive jobs. So an engineer to an IPT lead to a program manager to a deputy PEO. So in each case, I found myself in a position where I knew about what people below me were doing. So if caught in a, a bind, I could go in the door, in a, my office, close the door and figure things out for myself. When I took that in one job, all bets were off the table. For, I had, for everybody out there, in one is personnel. Personnel, yes. So when I went into military personnel, I mean, that whole, my whole way of progressing through jobs changed. So I had to learn a different skill set. I had to learn how to rely on other people. I had to rely on my gut a lot more. I had to delegate and things of that nature. So just having an open mind to continue to learn 
and to leverage talent and ask questions, I guess is the way I did it. I never really thought about it, really. That's awesome. And, and I'll steal this one from Honda, but something he talks about that makes a great leader is curiosity and, and being comfortable to ask those questions and then learn and develop from, from what you're hearing, I think is so critical. Um, so I think that's a great tip for our listeners. And on that note, something we like to dig into as well is workforce issues, talent issues, because we talk a lot about technology, but at the end of the day, this issue here is a human endeavor. Can you talk a little bit about how we might drive more talent towards national security missions? Uh, I definitely, I think, and I, I mentioned this briefly when I was talking about when I graduated from college, how I didn't really understand there was an opportunity for me in the national security space working for DOD. A lot, and that still exists today. A lot of college graduates do not know that you can come work for a Department of Defense without wearing the uniform. So I think we have to get the word out. And that's why I try to stay connected with my alma mater and other places and just say, hey, if you're a STEM person or a non-STEM person, I mean, DOD is its own world, right? I mean, it's its own organization, its own ecosystem. So you can be in engineering, you can be in finance, you know, you could be a lawyer, but there's work for you in the national security space. So I, I think that's very important, just letting people know the opportunity is this. And, and I'll tell you, um, this, it's nothing better than that. Um, having the opportunity to support the men and women in uniform who defend our freedoms every day is probably the most amazing thing you'll ever get to do. And I, and I don't just say that as words. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So I, to me, it's an easy decision. Um, but I, we also need to make sure that we are developing that workforce. And one of the challenges I saw in DOD is the training and education. I mean, you know, a lot of people get into their jobs. They're so focused on delivering on their jobs that they don't take time to develop themselves. And I think we have to do that. And finally, the DOD has to decide what talent they want to grow versus what talent they want to acquire, okay? And, and that's hard. And you, I think you probably dealt with some of this, Hondo, but, you know, and this is on the uniform side and the civilian side. You know, I remember having conversations way back about, you know, do we need to look at the military structure to see if we can side low people in, for lack of a better term, Right. You have to grow everybody from scratch. You know, do you grow a cyber expert in the Navy or do you set up a way for a great cyber person from a Google or something as reservist to come in and fill that role? I think we have to get creative in talent management the same way we are creative in our technology. Yes, Stephanie, one, I mean, you and I, I think, have a similarly bizarre careers of just, you know, bouncing between multiple services and and whatnot. And, and I like what you said a little bit about this, you know, it was easy when you had a serial career path, but I think to the listeners out there, whether you're in, uh, in, a in industry or in government, how does bouncing across these, you know, multiple things, how does it, I mean, it helps to challenge it, but what does it, what does it allow you to do as a leader that you don't think you would have achieved in a more traditional serial path? And, and what, what kind of superpower does that, that bring out of you that, that you, you've been able to leverage over the years? Uh, definitely. Um, the superpower is kind of like a people connector superpower, right? Because as I was saying, the, the technical part is the same regardless of where you do it. I mean, acquisition is acquisition, whether you're doing it in the Air Force, the Navy, the Marine Corps, or the Army. But the cultures are different. So by 
pollinating across like a hot think of a bumblebee. You just kind of go pollinating across. You have to learn to um, meet people where they are in their environment. And that drives you to have to develop a skill set to be able to connect at different levels, just not on a communication, but an understanding that is very different being on an aircraft carrier than it is being out in the desert, okay? It's very different seeing the world from the sky as it is from the ground. So understanding that, it allows you to not only broaden yourself, but to bring different perspectives. And it all comes together because what I think the ultimate um, goodness is, is that we fight as a unit. We don't fight as individual services. We fight as a unit and not just with our services, but with our allies, right? So the more we understand what the other brings to the table and from a leadership perspective, it helps develop that superpower so you can take it to the next level from a national security perspective. So that when you're having a conversation, when you're reading the national defense strategy, which is all about, you know, coming together as one unit to deliver what we need to deliver from a national security perspective. Yeah, I, I really enjoy that. I mean, we've, we are the only nation that really truly fights jointly right? in the way we mature that. And in the same sense, I think we're going to have to do that between government and industry. We can no longer have, you know, and so I think the opportunity for all of us is how do we, if we're going to create that future industrial network, or you've got to create common understanding so that you can then get to respect. Once you get that, then you can figure out how to leverage it. So I think it's a really powerful message for everyone of, you know, get uncomfortable. Uh, but that will, over time, allow you to become much more comfortable in uncomfortable situations. Oh, definitely, definitely. And I'll just stop that part about industry and the government. Um, transparency is the key. And I'm not saying selling the farm. Believe me, that's not what I'm saying. I know people are like, you know, you turn to the dark side, Stephanie. But no, it's just sharing enough. Like you alluded to, you know, you don't have to be exclusive, but be inclusive, right? What can I share? And just think of it. What do I need industry to do for me so that I can be more effective? And then Andrew's like, what do I need from my customer to be more effective? And just remembering that it's all about the customer because the ultimate customer are the men and women in uniform every day that do what they do. That's the only reason we all do this from either side. I know there's financial incentives and things of like that, but when it comes down to it, it's about the men and women in uniform who go out there every day to protect our freedoms, to put it very simply. Well, on that note, Stephanie, I think your message around the importance of teaming is clear, whether it's between functions, the services, and certainly between the U.S. government and industry. So thank you so much for taking the time today to share those insights. And I think there are a lot of great ideas here that we can push on to strengthen collaboration here. Thank you. Thanks again for the opportunity. Thank you guys for the great work you're doing and trying to bring the two entities together. And I wish you the very best. You've been listening to Building the Base a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.